you coming to this earth, Lord. And so, Father, we thank you. And Lord, we pray for everyone here in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's have the lights on. There we go. The message entitled, The Reason Jesus Came. You know, many people ask a lot of questions, and we're living in a time in the United States for the very first time that much of America has no biblical idea about Jesus, why he came or what it's all about. There have been many generations now overlapping at least two to three that are getting further and further away. And so we have been so indoctrinated within humanism and evolution and everything else that um, um, much of the American public is so self-centered upon the human energy and the humanism of man that we are so self-sufficient. And yet, maybe you've heard of someone who has um, had a seemingly comfortable life, maybe has many physical comforts, very wealthy, having a good job and everything else. And all of a sudden, you hear that they um, have given it all up and they've gone away to some obscure and hostile country because they said that it was God's will. And people scratch their head and they just think and they go, is he crazy? God told him. And what used to be the norm for pagan and religious countries is now the norm for America. But the picture of a man doing that, Mark gives us here a picture of Jesus who left heaven to come to this violent and corrupt world. He gave it all up. He's God. And he emptied himself of his glory. And he took on flesh. And he walked in the midst of men and women. And he came to demonstrate his love and his purpose to save them. And they treated him with the most respectful speech, with the most hostile attitude, and with the most blasphemous words. And he could have destroyed them, as he said when he created, light be. He could have just said, you are, and now you were. It would have been over. His love is demonstrated by being able to destroy and choosing not to destroy. In fact, Isaiah says that it's a strange way for God to work in terms of judgment. He would much rather forgive. And so Mark here in chapter 1, verse 9 through 15, he gives to us this picture of Jesus coming. He provides for the three reasons for Jesus coming to the earth. Let me read our text here. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. And then a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan and was with the wild beasts. And the angels ministered to him. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And saying, 
The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, if you don't know Jesus Christ tonight, God wants to speak to you because you're lost. The Bible describes you as lost in your sins under the wrath of God. That's not to insult you. That's to inform you about your perilous condition. But here, he gives us three reasons why Jesus came. In these verses, the first reason is Jesus came to be identified with sinful man. And we're going to see this in verse 9 through 11, to identify with you, with me. Secondly, Jesus came to defeat Satan as man in verse 12 and 13. That's very, very important, as we'll see. And thirdly, Jesus came to preach the good news of God to man in verses 14 and 15. So the first thing here, the reason in verse 9 and 11, is that Jesus came to identify with sinful man. Notice in verse 9, if you have a Bible with you there, the baptism of Jesus was performed by John. By the way, John was his cousin, six months older. They were um, um, close together in terms of relationships and the, the time they were born. And Jesus came out of Nazareth of Galilee, it says, an obscure, insignificant place to identify with sinful man by the baptism of John down here in the Jordan River. Now, some of you have gone to Israel. You know the Jordan River. It's uh, very muddy, very ugly. Sometimes it's not very big. Sometimes it's just six inches. You can just jump over it. It depends where you're, where you're going to cross it. But the baptism of John was a baptism of repentance that identified one with um, the forgiveness of sins to come, not the actual forgiveness. The preaching was for the Lamb of God that was coming to make the payment. Everybody who believed the promise of Abraham, all every Jew believed in the promise in the future. They believed God's revelation and they believed in faith and the animal sacrifices were an IOU of the payment to come. They were covered, they weren't forgiven. When Jesus, the Lamb of God, died, then he made the cash payment, if you will, for all those who had died in faith. Because the payment was made by Jesus, no one else, as we'll see. Yet he himself was without sin, but he became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteous of God in him, in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Now remember, he's holy. He took on flesh. In fact, he identifies himself, as we're going to see, as the last Adam. Now, we've heard of a first Adam. That's the one that was in the garden, okay? And he fell. And so John refuses to baptize him at first if you read the Gospels. But Jesus says, we must fulfill our righteousness. In other words, when Jesus came to be baptized by his cousin John, it was not because he had sin in his life, but because he was identifying himself with sinful man. He was going to take the place of your sin on the cross, my sin on the cross. And God was going to pour out his wrath on him instead of me. He was going to make that payment. The baptism of John was to identify Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. In verse 10 here, John tells us that the descending of the Holy Spirit was God's sign to John to identify Jesus from all others in John chapter 1, verse 33 and 34. He says, whoever you see the Spirit descend, he's my son. He's the Messiah. In fact, John the Baptist was shocked <laughs> that his cousin was Messiah. 
It is difficult for us to understand because even Mary and Elizabeth, they were real close cousins, and the Spirit of God had ministered unto them. They knew. But there was still that um, time when God was doing work, John by the Jordan, Jesus being raised up, and God brought them together. And the one who would baptize in the Holy Spirit, as verse 7 and 8 says of this chapter, before we get to our text. See, man can baptize with water. If you have a friend and you share Christ with them, and they accept the Lord, and you happen to have a pool at your house, or you're at their house have a pool, and they say, hey, well, why don't you baptize me? You can baptize them. You don't have to be a minister. Anybody can baptize somebody else. If they've accepted Christ. Now, if they don't accept Christ, then there's just a wet sinner. No big deal. Okay? Dirt won't even come off. But only Jesus baptizes in the Holy Spirit. John said, there's one among you whose shoelaces I'm not worthy to loosen. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, he's very distinct from other men, though he became man. The baptism of John was confirmed by the Father's voice identifying Jesus as the only Son. Verse 11, if you notice there. You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God the Father can never say that about any man, any woman. Because we all fall short of the glory of God. Jesus said one time, which of you convicts me of sin? Nobody said anything. Now, if you stand up and say, which of you convict me of sin, we'll laugh at you. If I said it, you'd laugh at me. Because you're a human being just like I am. And you know that we, whether private or in public, are bent us towards sin. Darkness attracts us. It pulls on us. We have the potential for good, but are bent us towards evil. There's not one good. No, not one. I can hear Paul saying, no, not even you. (laughs) No one. So Jesus came to be identified with sinful man. Very important. That is the foundation. He didn't come to exalt himself. He didn't come to place himself above man. But he came to prove himself compatible and one with man. The second reason is given in verse 12 and 13 that Jesus came to defeat Satan as man. This is important, as man. 1 John 3a says, to destroy the work of the devil. As you know, Satan's the one who caused all the trouble in Eden, but it was the first Adam who gave in to the devil, right? So, we can't blame everything on the devil. He's part of the problem, but the main problem is Adam. Just like you cannot blame what you do, how you live, if you don't know Jesus, on the devil. There used to be a guy called Flip Wilson. I'm laughing long ago before you guys were even born, some of you. He'd always come out and say, the devil made me do it. Okay? I think, you know, Satan has access to heaven. I think Satan sometimes in heaven goes to Jesus. I didn't do it. He just said, I didn't do nothing. We don't need any help from Satan. There's enough darkness in us. And when you put our darkness and Satan together, it's bad, bad news. 
Jesus was driven into the wilderness, notice in verse 12, by the Holy Spirit, by the way. Don't let that shock you. He came for this very purpose. The first Adam fell in Genesis, and death and sin passed to all men. Romans 5.12 says, before Genesis, there was no death. Now many people try to push the gap theory between Genesis verse 1 and 2, that there was a creation before that. Well, Romans 5.12 rejects that. Death didn't come in until one man, and death through sin. So much for the gap theory, if you read your Bible. You don't have to have a PhD, you just have to use your brain and use the scriptures. So the last Adam, Jesus, had come to declare and prove that the first Adam did not have to fail. Now, prior to the fall, the first Adam, he was, for the lack of better terms, as best as we can define and at least understand little differences, he was, let's say, innocent from sin, committing sin, being contaminated with sin. He was living in a perfect world. And God says, if you do this, you'll live eternally. You can have everything over here, anything you want in this place. There's one thing, don't touch it. Because if you touch it, you're going to die. And he's talking about eating. Whatever it was, apple, cherries, doesn't tell us. Having everything, he chose that one thing. Once he partook, there was no going back. Immediately, he died spiritually. Fellowship was broken with God. Physical death began to take place, though it took hundreds of years. Then he had to actually die. So, the Hebrew really says, when you eat, in that day, dying you will die. Isn't it interesting? When a baby is born, we celebrate their birth, but really, it's the beginning of their death. The minute they're born, they get smacked. They give their first breath. They begin to die. And the baby is dying, 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 dying. He becomes a teenager, dying, dying, dying. Becomes an adult, dying, dying, dying. Gets to be an old man. And one day he really dies. All together. On the physical level, on the spiritual level, it's eternal separation from God. If there's no reconciliation. So the first Adam brought this upon the whole human race. Jesus is the last Adam. He came to prove that the first Adam did not have to fail, but chose to fail. Therefore, he is responsible for the fall, for sin and death. And it passed to all men and women. Some of you are not married yet, but when you get married and you have a little child, little boy, little girl, you're not going to have to teach them at two years old, say, okay, I'm going to sit you down, Johnny, I'm going to teach you how to lie. How to be mean. How to throw your toys in your food. You're going to have to teach them just the opposite. You know Why? Because they're going to be your children. They're just like you, a sinner. Sinners produce sinners. That's what we produce. And so Jesus came to undo that. 
to give an offer to every individual to undo what Adam did in terms of a second opportunity. Notice Jesus in verse 13 was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted before, uh, being tempted by Satan for the three big temptations. Matthew and Luke tells us that he fasted for 40 days. That's a long time. All three times Jesus overcame Satan as the last Adam. Never call him the second Adam. If you call him the second Adam, there could be a third, fourth, fifth. It's the first Adam, the last Adam. Only two representatives for the human race. Either you stand in the first Adam, fallen, separated from God under his wrath, or the last Adam justified in Jesus Christ. You sit in one of the two tonight. The temptations were real. Jesus overcame every one of them. He was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says. Now, if Jesus was not really tested, then there couldn't have been a potential for failure. For Jesus to actually have been said to be triumphant, And victorious, there had to have been a potential for his failure. If he couldn't have failed like the first Adam, then there was no real testing. And therefore, there could be no victory. Never think about it. Okay? He came in the exact same likeness as the first Adam. He's called the last Adam. The tests were identical. The first Adam failed. The last Adam failed. Did not fail. The weapons that Jesus used was prayer of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. The first Adam was in the garden with tame animals. The last Adam, Jesus, in the wilderness with wild animals. Jesus had a lot harder. (laughs) He still did not fail. Now, in verse 13, Jesus was ministered to by angels. Matthew says, after Satan left him. Angels are ministering spirits to the earth of salvation. Jesus became one of us. So Jesus came to defeat Satan as a man. This is a very important reason. He came to identify with man and then to defeat Satan. Then the third reason, which is the ultimate goal. Jesus came to preach the good news of God to man. Verse 14 and 15. The good news means... Gospel and gospel means good news. It's the only good news that's really available to man. The word preaching there is caruso. And the word caruso for an official who made proclamations. Many of these men were hired by kings and states to make proclamations. Now, when a person was hired by the state or a king or something, um, the message was not theirs. It was given to them what to proclaim. The authority was not theirs. It was vested to them. They were not responsible for the response. They were only responsible for proclaiming the message. Each person hearing was responsible for what they were hearing. The same here with the gospel. You and I, we, it's not our message. If I would have written the gospel, I probably would have made it much permissive. Wider. Not such as mental. The authority is vested to you and I to proclaim this message. And I'm not responsible tonight for your response. I'm only responsible to proclaim the good news to you. 
And then you're going to get an opportunity to choose whether you want to go to heaven or you want to go to hell. Now, you can go to either place. You don't have to go to hell. You can go to heaven. But you choose where you're going to spend eternity. You can't blame the preacher. You can't blame your mom. You can't blame your dad. You can't blame Satan. You can't blame anybody. That's a hard pill to swallow in a generation that's entitled today. That's called uh, to blame everybody. Dysfunctionalism. But it's nothing new. In the days of Jeremiah, they had the same philosophy. Jeremiah says, God told Jeremiah, don't, don't, don't say that saying anymore. They were saying, you know, our parents ate sour grapes and our teeth are on edge. What is that? Dysfunctionalism. It's not my fault. Listen to me. It is your fault. My fault. Everything you've ever done in your life, you've made a decision. No one forced you to smoke. No one forced you to drink. Nobody forced you to have sex. Nobody forced you to steal. You made a decision to do what you did. And once something is done, there's no one doing it. The only hope that you and I have is not to undo the things, but to be forgiven for our sin. Because we are creating the image and likeness of God, and sin and guilt and shame will destroy you mentally, spiritually, and ultimately physically. And the years will become heavy. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse you from your sin. Nothing else. This is the offer of the good news. The gospel there is the same word for evangelism. Good tithings. Man is lost under the wrath of God. He offers us the grace of God to be forgiven for our sins. Not because we deserve it. But because Jesus has made a real payment for sin. And he makes it available to all sinners. Because God takes no special favor towards anybody. All are lost. The message there in verses 14 and 15 was the good news of God and his kingdom, not human proclamation. That's important. The time is fulfilled, he says there. The word time is kairos. That means a very specific seasonal time. This was the time that God came and became man and preached the gospel. Three years, three and a half years. Then he would be crucified, die, be raised from the dead, and ascend to heaven and sit at the right hand of the Father. And so this is called the age of grace. Grace is unmerited favor undeserved. The kingdom is at hand, he says. It's drawn near. The kingdom is present and yet to come. The kingdom is like an eclipse. It's been present since the coming of Jesus. And the kingdom has come and is moving forward like an eclipse. And when it's totally eclipsed, that's the second coming of Christ. And it will be established in the kingdom. So the kingdom is present and yet to come. The age of grace. And so the condition to enter the kingdom is repentance and belief in the gospel. Repentance is a change in mind with a change of life. Agreeing with God that he has made the payment of sin. That I am dead in sin. But if I would believe that he died in my place and rose from the dead and that payment be made, his atonement. And the effectiveness of his blood payment can be placed on my account. 
And he can make me whiter than snow. He can bury my sins in the deepest ocean. He can put him, cast him as far as he's in the west. He can put him behind his back. And he will never remember my sin. You know anywhere you can get that kind of deal? And he gave you the peace of God to live your life. Because he made a real payment. He paid a real price that none of us could have paid. And so Jesus came to preach the good news of God to man. Three great reasons. Jesus is our spiritual physician. He says that we are terminally ill. There is no solution, no cure on earth for our condition. It must come from him and him alone. For that reason, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And that one statement I've told you often, Jesus destroyed every way that everybody says you can get to heaven. He calls them liars and thieves, and he signed it in blood. So if anybody tells you that you can get to heaven apart from the atoning work of Jesus Christ, run. They are liars. They're false teachers, false prophets. They're deceivers. Many have been water baptized just by joining the church, thinking that now they're going to go to heaven. But the Bible says they're just wet sinners. They're lost. Signing your name on a scroll doesn't make you go to heaven. Being religious is not sufficient. Whatever you sacrifice, Paul says you can give your body to be burned. Who cares? We don't get to heaven because we do good works. We get to heaven because we are sinners. And we agree with God that we're good for nothing but sin. And so we accept the payment of sin, realizing that the wages of sin is death. And that he made that payment for every person. The invitation is... The gospel of the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in should not perish but have everlasting life. Tonight, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ, he's talking about you. Now, God is a perfect gentleman. He will not force you to go to heaven. You have all the right to go to hell. But you don't have to go there. You can decide whether you want your sins to be forgiven and to know without a shadow of a doubt that he gives you eternal life and that you will be going to heaven when you die. Not based on who you are or what you've done, but based upon the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that is an opportunity that is promised to no one tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. So the solution is, do you want to be born again? That's the phrase. Where God forgives you, he gives you a new mind, a new heart, he gives you a spirit, and he makes you his child. And he begins to do a work in your heart. And you're able to live to please God. You begin to read the word, you begin to study, you begin to grow, you begin to give him these things, and he takes them from you and replaces them with much better things. But it comes through the new birth. Repentance, no other way. So if you're here tonight, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you're into. I don't know if you just came to just check out the place or whatever you think. But 
God has brought you here to be saved. And so I want to give you an opportunity right now as we pray to accept Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your goodness. We love you. We thank you. And Lord, I pray for every person here that your hand be upon them. Thank you for them, Lord. Thank you for bringing them. Lord, uh, we pray that even now you would speak to their hearts and you would just pour out your grace and love over them, Lord, that they would understand how much you love them and how eager you are to forgive them, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins, you alone again can make that decision, no one else. Jesus, being God, became sin for you because he loves you. He doesn't want to see you perish. He doesn't want to condemn you. He wants to forgive you and give you the greatest hope. That you may live your life to his glory. That you may receive the benefit as you walk with him. And that if he should tarry and not come for his church, that you may live a life found as an example for him. And that when you give your last breath, you would be instantly present before him. Right where you sit. Get over the internet, right where you're at. This is your prayer of repentance if you want to accept him. Between you and God. If you don't mean it, you walk out the same way you came in lost. That's your choice. If you mean it, he's going to forgive you. He's going to transform you. He's going to give you his Holy Spirit. He's going to make you his child right now. This is your prayer to him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with the Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you made that decision, we want to welcome you to the family. All we want to do is give you a Bible absolutely free. Share some important things for your growth and you'll be free to leave. Your friends and loved ones will wait for you. Brother, am I right your left here? After our sisters finishes up, please go right over there. They'll give you that Bible. Thank you for coming. And if you didn't accept Jesus and you're still lost, you're lost. And if you die, you will go to hell. We don't say that with the smack of the lips or exalting ourselves. We do that with a broken heart. God, through Ezekiel, says, Turn, turn and live. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God's heart's broken if you're lost. He loves you so much. If you didn't accept him, go over there. They'll take you to the sinner's prayer. Thank you for coming tonight. God bless you. What can wash you?